0: This is KNX In Depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: And I'm Charles Feldman. There's some good news potentially to report on the Omicron variant. Early lab data showing the current Pfizer COVID vaccines more or less holding up, at the key might be getting that booster shot. So we will go in depth. And what if we told you that a potential COVID infection could be knocked down by chewing gum? Well, not just any gum, but a kind laced with a special protein. And should we be feeling a little nervous today, after a swarm of over 40 earthquakes, struck off of oregon's coast in an area that's infamous for big destructive quakes
0: after a very violent 2020 several major cities poised to go past last year's homicide totals there are still three weeks to go in 2021 we'll look at the violence crime crisis then a crisis of a different kind mental health among american teenagers rates of depression and suicide attempts are soaring and then later on brace yourselves for what could be one of
1: the most expensive holiday seasons that we have seen We start with Omicron and vaccines. Dr. Sabra Klein teaches and researches immunology and microbiology at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, where she's co-director, Center for Women's Health, Sex and Gender Research. So this Pfizer news today is Mm -hmm. on the surface anyway, very promising. And I heard Dr. Fauci this morning on television saying that it looked good. What can you tell us about it?
2: Okay, so what what. You know, what the data coming out of Pfizer, and there are other data that came out of South Africa um, showing that in order for the vaccines, including the Pfizer vaccine, to be protective against this new variant of concern called Omicron. We the the immunity is best following the booster. So those of us who have only ever been vaccinated and have never been sick with COVID, if you are an adult, the answer is go get your booster because it's following the booster that there's adequate neutralization, um, uh, preventing a virus from infecting cells. You want that neutralizing antibody, and we have sufficient neutralizing antibody after the booster. So, getting the booster, I think the other thing that's been shown coming out of South Africa, where vaccine rates are considerably lower than they are for us here in the United States, is that for anyone who has only been infected, you don't have sufficient antibody to protect against Omicron. But in individuals who have been infected and vaccinated, they have sufficient antibody. So I think, you know, the the answer, the solution, the only control that we as individuals have against this new variant is to ensure that we're vaccinated. And if we are in a population for whom booster doses are available and recommended, please go get it, even if you've been infected previously.
0: Okay, so we hope that the good news so far holds and this actually is is borne out through all the data but the why would be what that the the big jump in antibodies and and the big ramp up that you get after your third shot is enough to counter the differences with omicron and the differences you know previously with delta and all of that i mean it's a simplification because the immune system's complicated but is that kind of the gist of it that
2: is that is the gist of it you got it completely um, in this moment, without fully knowing all the correlates of protection, more is better. So if we can boost appropriately our, our immunity, um, you're going to be better protected against these variants. There's going to be some antibody in your body that recognizes Omicron and can protect you.
3: Now,
1: and- but, but we should point out, right, that all this uh, uh, material that came out today— Uh, from Pfizer. This is in the laboratory, so it could be different, better or worse, right, in the so-called real world.
2: Absolutely. Such an important observation. And my hope is that it will be better um, because what we, what, what all of us have, in addition to these antibody responses that we're all measuring in our laboratories, you have other types of responses, including responses by other cells called T cells. That do that are not as affected um, by the mutations occurring in these variants, and that might be very good at protecting us. Um, but but this all requires that we have some level of exposure and that we're not completely naive, and that includes our children. So you know anybody who is eligible to get vaccinated and who has not been infected um, needs to go get vaccinated. This is this is our best mode for protecting. Um, All of us, including, you know, the people who are at greatest risk for severe disease, whether it's from Delta or now from Omicron, which are our older adults, our pregnant people, anyone who's immunocompromised because of having an autoimmune disease, cancer, or a solid organ transplant. Um, you know, so I really want to emphasize that we, we also don't know how well their immune responses are. So it's up to the rest of us to do what we can to protect them.
0: Dr. Sabra Klein teaches and researches in immunology and microbiology at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health.
1: And coming up, stopping the spread of COVID could soon be as easy as chewing some gum and blowing bubbles. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: Still to come, should California be establishing itself as a safe haven for abortion access after several other states indicated they'll likely try and ban almost all types of abortion? Before that, 2021 on track to be more violent than America was last year. National crime surge
1: continues. Right now, though, you know the old saying about being able to walk and chew gum at the same time, something I've yet to perfect. Well, uh, <laughs> what stops do- right there in the <laughs> yeah. middle of the sidewalk? <laughs> why do (laughs) if you could chew gum and kill coronavirus in your mouth at the same time. Now, believe it or not, there is a chewing gum in development right now that could dramatically cut COVID transmission. Dr. Henry Daniel is vice chair and professor in the Department of Basic and Translational Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, gum, COVID, it doesn't seem like it goes together, but explain this one.
4: Yeah, it is kind of sounds uh, unusual, but this gum is like any other cinnamon flavored gum, except that it has one additional protein. It's a viral trap protein. This protein is present in our saliva naturally, but it's not enough. so this protein, the virus binds to this protein and dominates this protein. And by blocking this protein, it has free entry into human cells. What we have done is make the chewing gum with this protein, which is naturally present in human saliva and human blood. And this does two things. One, by binding it traps the SARS-CoV-2, the virus of COVID-19 disease in the gum and the ones that escape the gum, which is not trapped, it goes and blocks the gate of entry because the virus and the enzyme uses the same gate to enter human cells.
0: So is this to prevent me hopefully from, you know, spitting out some COVID? or is it to prevent me from breathing in some covid if my mouth is open and i walk through a cloud of covid germs
4: both actually the covid-19 disease symptoms um, are manifested by the viral load by decreasing the viral load you decrease the disease severity and therefore decreases someone going to the hospital so decreasing the virus decreases These symptoms because you are not swallowing the virus again and again. The virus replicates in the salivary glands. So that's its primary site of multiplication. So you control the virus at the source. At the same time, people who are asymptomatic, who don't know that they are infected, even those vaccinated who get breakthrough infections, have the same level of viral load like the unvaccinated. When they speak, they spread the virus within the family when they don't wear the mask. And so this one, by dramatically reducing the viral load, it prevents transmission. So it does both. It helps those who are infected. And at the same time, it helps those who are around the infected individuals.
1: Now, one of the things, though, that, and help me out, I'm a little confused about, because I know that there are other researchers that are trying to develop nasal sprays uh, to combat COVID because they say, well, uh, the virus makes its home in the in the nasal cavity. But your uh, gum, of course, is in the oral cavity. So, uh, is there are there two homes in which the virus tends to to uh, uh, germinate?
4: You are absolutely correct. Very smart question. Yes, actually, the virus enters through the nose and the disease is less severe in the upper lung, more severe in the lower lung. So that is one path of entry. The other path of entry is oral. And there are both ways of entry, but then even if the virus enters through the nose and gets into circulation, it still comes back to the saliva for replication. So ultimately, the predominant uh source of replication is the salivary glands, but point of entry is both the nose and the mouth.
1: Dr. I mean, Henry, but the important question, you didn't ask the important question here. Can you blow bubbles with, <laughs> with this? We thought that it was cinnamon flavored. <laughs> yeah, we got that. Can you blow bubbles with it? Yes or no? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> Dr. Henry Daniel, Vice Chair, Professor of Department of Basic and Translational Nas- Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. I also love how, you know, this was a, a great textbook example of the different questions that you and I ask. Yours is, isn't there two homes for the virus in the nasal cabin? And mine is like, are you out here spitting COVID all over the streets? <laughs> That's the show, folks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you get what you pay for. <laughs> when we come back, 40 earthquakes uh, hitting within about 24 hours on a notorious fault line along the Pacific coast. Isolated curiosity or is it time to panic?
5: This is KNX In-Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: And welcome again to our uh, potentially new listeners uh, listening in to KNX News at uh, Ninety-seven one FM, and for those of you along for the ride at ten seventy AM, welcome back. We haven't driven them away yet. No, no, no. Uh, now, uh, why we all could be paying off this year's holiday season spending for most of twenty twenty-two. With prices surging across the board, that is going to be coming up a little bit later in the show. And uh, before that, something seems to be very wrong with America's teenagers.
0: Right now, though, this uh, earthquake swarm up north off the coast of Oregon, as we were saying before. Fun scientific curiosity or uh, uh uh-oh. Get ready. Uh, John Vidali, seismologist and professor of earth sciences at USC, formerly directed both the Southern California Earthquake Center and the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. John, thanks for being here. So they've been pretty busy up there. Yeah.
6: Yeah, it's been a lively day or two. Uh, It's pretty exciting. But, you know, the activity is far offshore, so uh, people are wondering, but there's really not much to worry about.
1: Well, didn't this particular fault, though, cause I think it was somewhere around the 1700s, a, a pretty bad earthquake or tsunami or both?
6: Yeah, there was a terrible earthquake in 1700, but it was actually on the fault right along the coast, uh, the Cascadia subduction zone. It had a magnitude nine. You know, they happen about every 500 years up there, and you know there could be one any year now. You know, small chance any year, but we're in the window. But these earthquakes are a couple hundred miles offshore on a different fault, so we're not too worried that these earthquakes are going to excite the big fault.
0: Yeah, which is one of the main questions, right, when we have swarms and we have them out in the Salton Sea and other places, you know, closer to us. But does a swarm necessarily mean anything for some of the lines around it, even with this one where some of these quakes in the swarm have been, they've been pretty big?
6: Well, yeah, they've gotten up to almost magnitude 6, and there's several. There have been a dozen or so bigger than magnitude 5. It's it's pretty exciting to watch, but it is a couple hundred miles away from the fault we're worried about, and usually earthquakes don't affect uh, out to that far a distance when they're only magnitude 6.
1: But it's interesting. You say it's far from the fault that we worry about, but sometimes, as, as nature has it, the things that we don't worry about are the things that maybe we should be
6: um yeah that's true and you know seismologists have gotten in trouble saying don't worry about earthquakes because you know something or other has happened because sometimes you know there are earthquakes anyway some seismologists in italy uh got convicted of manslaughter because they failed to predict an earthquake but um you know really we, we can't predict these earthquakes and this activity the last day or so hasn't really uh given us much reason to think anything's more likely than usual.
0: We just both looked at each other in here because they got manslaughter for failing to predict the thing that they can't predict.
6: Exactly. Uh, We were outraged. Uh, And, you know, they appealed the decision. And after like three or four years, they were cleared. But (laughs) they basically had to retire. And then they were facing (laughs) it.
1: So, John, are you guys now like really careful about what you say?
6: Well, in the U.S., they can't really convict you unless they prove you were malicious. Ah, in okay. Italy, they can convict you for just doing a bad job.
0: Yeah, so he's not hiding the quake from no, us. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's good to know.
0: Uh, when you say hey, pretty fun to watch or pretty interesting, why? Just because there's, there's so many and it is a swarm and it attracts attention? Or what, what do you see that maybe we don't?
6: Well, as scientists, you know, we like to know how earthquakes lead to more earthquakes because, you know, we'd love to predict earthquakes. And when we see a sequence like this in the fracture zone offshore, we can try to pin down just why these earthquakes are all coming at the same time. And, you know, reasonably big earthquakes uh, with some kind of spatial spread gives us a chance to get a look inside the process. So we're excited to look at the data, but it, it doesn't mean we see anything that's very promising yet.
0: All right. John Vidali, seismologist, professor of earth sciences at USC, used to direct both the Southern California Earthquake Center and the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. Go and get your earthquake kit ready because there's going to be one eventually.
1: And if you're thinking about becoming a seismologist in Italy, don't. Because yes. <laughs> that, that Career advice bad. brought to you free of charge. <laughs> yeah, not a good place to, to be. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: Murders spiked in most American big cities last year. Came as something as a surprise. Seemed almost like a statistical oddity. We spent most 2020 locked down thanks to COVID. And other crime categories actually decreased last year. Now it's not looking like an anomaly anymore. 2021 on pace to produce higher homicide rates in most big cities. And that is still with a few more weeks still left to go in the year.
1: New York, Philly, Chicago, here in L.A., all cities where... 2021 will end up being more violent than 2020. Thomas Apt is a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, where he chairs the Violent Crime Working Group. Thomas, thanks for being with us. So are things really getting that bad or is it the way one looks at statistics or what time period one is choosing to look at? What's the actual answer to that?
7: It's a good question. Uh, I think that uh, in 2020, the nation unfortunately witnessed the largest single jump in homicide, 29%, that's ever been recorded in, uh, in modern crime statistics. However, it is important to keep in mind that even with that big jump, we did not get all the way back to the highest crime rates of the late 80s and early 90s. And so we're still at about two-thirds of the homicide rate that we were back then. So it's a cause for concern, but not panic.
0: What do we attribute the rise to, even if it's not like it once was, it's still higher than where we were at?
7: Well, I think to understand the, uh, the homicide rise, you've got to understand that this is happening all over the country, in some cities worse than others, but it is a national phenomenon. Uh, And so you've got to look at national factors. And I think the two key factors, uh, and most criminologists agree with me, are the pandemic and the social unrest following uh, the brutal murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, The pandemic, uh, you know, caused a tremendous amount of stress to everyone, but, uh, you know, the COVID-19 virus concentrated in precisely the same communities, uh, poor communities of color, where violence uh, predominates. And so those kind, uh, communities were put under even greater stress. At the same time, the institutions that are responsible for responding to violence, uh, you, know, uh, you know, EMS, uh, police, also all the good community-based work that's being done, uh, you know, violence intervention, gang interruption, things like that, uh, all of that was, uh, was, you know, temporarily placed on hold. And then of course you have the social unrest. And essentially, you know that just added uh, you know, uh, another factor to a very difficult situation. Um, and I think that as a result, you're seeing both communities pulling back from law enforcement and you're seeing law enforcement pulling back from communities, neither of which is good.
1: Well, you know, there there is often a uh, knee-jerk reaction on the part of police unions around the country when crime goes up that, well, what we need is more funding, we need more uh, police officers. Is there any statistical evidence? that there is a correlation between uh, a rise or a decrease for that matter in crime rates and the strength of the police department. In other words, if the police uh, department is cut, is there a corresponding rise in crime? And when police are added, is there a corresponding drop in crime?
7: I think that there's not good evidence that, you know, for every dollar you spend on law enforcement, you're going to get a dollar in crime reduction. Uh, what we see uh, when we look at the evidence carefully is that what police do uh, is more important than how many police there are. Now that doesn't mean that when a already uh, strapped agency, uh, you know, stressed out uh, uh, you know, because of COVID-19 in response to all, all the social unrest and then is put under even more pressure that that can't have an impact. But I don't think the idea that, you know, what some sort of traditionalists say is, you know, well, just more dollars for police is the right answer. Because it's very important to understand that when it comes to smart on crime strategies, the police are a necessary part of violence reduction, but they're not sufficient.
0: What about guns? We have, what, more guns than we know what to do with in this country?
7: We do, we have more guns than adults in this country, and that is a problem. We also saw a, a huge surge in gun sales that began at the beginning of the pandemic that has not, uh, not diminished yet. However, there's some recent uh, uh, research out of UC Irvine uh, that I think is pretty compelling, showing that, that these recent sales in, uh, in guns are probably not the culprit in terms of rising gun violence. What is more likely the culprit in terms of this immediate uh, it, this immediate increase is the rise in illegal gun possession. What we're seeing in many cities is that police are recovering more guns while making less arrests, which suggests that more people are carrying illegal guns out in public. The reason that the gun sales aren't likely pushing the homicides higher is that what we know from, uh, from research is that the time to crime, meaning the time for, uh, that a gun is purchased to the time it's actually used in a crime, is often measured in years, meaning that it often takes several years for a gun to move from a legal purchase into the gray market, finally into the black market, and then be used in a crime.
0: Thomas Apt, Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, chairs the Violence Crime Working Group.
1: The uh, state of uh, America's teenagers' mental health Not very good. When we come back, we'll tell you why.
5: This is X In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman.
1: One staggering statistic could sum up the state of mental health among America's teenagers. Emergency room visits for suspected suicide attempts in the early months of 2021 were 51 percent higher for adolescent girls than in 2019. ER visits for suicide attempts went up for teenage boys as well, albeit at a slower pace, all of which is cause for concern for both teens and their parents
0: the surgeon general took the unusual step of issuing a public health report on teenage mental health warning of a national crisis dr joshua gordon director of the national institute of mental health within the nih psychiatrist neurobiologist by training doctor thanks for being here i think the uh, surgeon general used the term devastating right is that where we're at with this devastating effects on some of these kids
3: yeah, I think that's where we're at. Uh, another statistic for you, 140,000 kids across the United States lost a caregiver at some point during the pandemic. So, yeah, devastating.
1: So what is the country doing
3: about it? Well, we're doing a lot of things. First of all, there's a lot of heroic uh, first-line mental health care providers who are out there giving treatment to these kids. Uh, there are a number of uh, hotlines and other services uh, that are seeing a lot of action, a lot of contacts from, from kids to try to get them the help they need. Uh, and uh, and so we're responding as best we can. The country's also dedicating additional funds through the Substance Use and Mental Health Service Administration and additional research funds to try to make sure we understand how best to deal with it.
0: Do we have definitive reasons or is it pretty much on a case-by-case basis? in some of these? I mean, you mentioned loss of a caregiver. We've been in and are still in the pandemic. We have all these other pressures on teens that maybe weren't there in this kind of fashion in in years past.
3: Yeah. I mean, in addition to that, of course, uh, kids have been uh, virtual for uh, parts uh, of the past year, if not not much of it for some kids. They haven't been seeing their friends, their family. And, uh, And we see correlations between uh, what children report in terms of depression and anxiety and their ability to connect with their peers, their ability to connect with their family members uh, that they normally rely on. And that's that has a positive side as well. Children who are better able to connect to parental figures, to mentors, to friends uh, through the pandemic, virtually or in person, have done better.
1: Are there signs, uh, clinical signs, that parents should be alert to? What are they?
3: yeah I mean they're the same as before the pandemic, you want to look out for children who are withdrawing children who are uh, experiencing a downturn in terms of their grades or their participation in extracurricular activities, their interest in seeing their friends. Uh, And uh, of course, you want to be alert for expressions of suicidality if a child says, uh, you know, Life isn't worth living or uh, I'm thinking of hurting myself. That's 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 an urgent need you need to deal with right away.
1: But uh, while I understand what you're saying, that it's sort of the same signs as before the pandemic, there are some key differences, as you yourself just pointed out. I mean, you know, a lot of kids have been spending a lot of time at home. Uh, they're not necessarily seeing their friends. So the issue about whether they're they're, you know, partying with their friends uh, may not be <laughs> may, may not be so relevant now. So so uh, are there subtle differences perhaps?
3: Yeah, I think uh, you know, now you want to pay attention to what your kids are if they are doing online, if they are socializing online or if they are uh doing something that's more isolating. Um you also want to watch out for other things like changes in uh, irritability or sleep patterns. Um, Those are also signs of depression and anxiety in children that one can watch
0: out for. We hear a couple different sides. And the first is, you know what, it's great that we have all these apps and we have Zoom and everything because you can connect with people that um, you maybe couldn't because we were locked down for a while. So that's all wonderful. But at the end of the day, does it not satisfy in the same way as as you know an actual personal relationship. I mean a kid can have a bunch of Instagram friends or or whatever it is. Um, but you know, you're a neurobiologist. So is it in the brain the same kind of thing? Or is it because it's a an online facade, it's just it's not
3: it's not there. Well on um, of course it's not the same thing. And we also know human touch is really powerful for social connectedness in in and also for brain development. So no it's not the same. However, what really matters is not so many not not so much uh, how many relationships one has online, but the quality of those relationships. We have seen uh, data that shows that strong supportive relationships, even if they are predominantly online, can be helpful for children, uh, while a a lot of of, of, uh, a a large number of relationships that don't have that same quality uh, are not as helpful.
1: As I think we all know, the uh, pandemic is has become uh, regrettably so politicized, uh, and I'm wondering if there's any evidence that that in and of itself is having an impact on the mental health of, of
3: kids. Well, I would say um, the degree to which politicization and other social factors have contributed to our uh, the challenges we've had in controlling the pandemic, yes, absolutely, because as the longer the pandemic lasts, the more severe, the more people get sick, the more people die, the larger the effects And those communities that have been hit hardest by the pandemic are precisely the communities where you see higher levels of distress, be it anxiety, depression, or worse.
0: No matter who you are, what age you are, is there still a reluctance among a lot of people to either go and ask for help, or or even open themselves to the idea of like, hey, maybe a therapist is not a terrible thing, and it's not shameful, and I should go get one. Maybe we should all have shrinks.
3: I think there is some resistance uh, to that still, uh, compared to say seeking out help for other medical illnesses, uh, but we are seeing, especially amongst y- young people, greater acceptance of the notion that we uh, that people have uh, mental health challenges, mental health problems, and that reaching out for help, be it to a professional or to some other um, adult that one uh, can rely on and trust, uh, I think we're seeing greater acceptance. And that probably is also contributing to the higher rates, because as people uh, seek help as they acknowledge their needs, uh, we find out that it's, you know, that it's quite prevalent.
0: Got to have somebody to talk to, Dr. Joshua Gordon, Director of the National Institute of Mental Health within the NIH. Dr.,
5: thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, More in depth on the way. We'll have another 30 minutes.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The California Future of Abortion Council released a new report highlighting 45 policy recommendations intended to make the Golden State a sanctuary for the procedure. The aim of the council is to protect and expand access to abortion as well as counter the effects of pro-life politicians in states like Texas and Mississippi who are poised to restrict most kinds of abortions.
0: Many conservative Californians concerned their taxpayer dollars will be funding these policies. Fabiola Carrion is Director of Reproductive and Sexual Health at the National Health Law Program, a leader on the council. Thanks for being with us. So to set the scene here, right there are states poised and ready to ban abortion if they can, um, two dozen, and so that's prompted this discussion because it's sort of obvious that people would try to come here, to come to California, to have this done.
8: We estimate that more than 26 states will severely restrict or ban abortion coverage if Roe v. Wade falls after the Supreme Court decides in favor of Mississippi in June. We already know that 2021 is the worst year when it comes to abortion access in the country, more than 106 abortion restrictions have been enacted. Um, in several states. And California, with its progressive laws on abortion and reproductive freedom, is getting ready to welcome those who are coming to our state as well to serve the um, the needs of those who need abortion services here.
1: Okay. Well, getting ready is one thing, but how we get ready is another, right? Uh, is part of the, the concept to uh, use taxpayer dollars to pay for the abortions for women from out of state who can't get abortions in their home states? Is that part of it?
8: The way that we can address it is by looking at it at various ways. We can certainly welcome those who um, have low incomes and who need to come here to the state to access abortion services. It's also about making sure that we have the workforce necessary to attend to everyone who needs abortion services, that we have as many doctors and nurses and other providers who can provide abortion. And then also we want to make sure that people are educated about their rights that are already existing Okay, but, but is
1: the answer to the—but but you didn't answer the question. Is the answer to the question, uh, is part of the plan to use taxpayer dollars to pay uh, for the abortions for women from other states who come to California and perhaps can't afford it? Is that part of the thinking?
8: Our state already it's um, government money to make sure that people access abortions we do that not only through our taxes but we do so by paying insurance just like we do for any other services and yes we're making sure that we're doing right by the people who are going to be coming here to access those services because it is their constitutional right and it is a right that is protected by our state
0: do we know what kind of numbers are possible how many people would come how many women would come
8: Yeah, we are um, assuming that maybe 1.6 million people will come in uh, to to access abortion services that could macro institute. found that more than the that, that people who will be coming from other states will increase by 300,000%. So we are assuming that a lot will be yeah. hearing here.
1: Well, one one could be uh, in favor of, of the woman's right to abortion, but at the same time, if one is a taxpayer in California, not want their taxpayer dollars to pay for somebody who comes here from another state specifically to get an abortion, to pay for that with their tax dollars, couldn't they?
8: In California and as in other states, we dev- devote our taxpaying money to pay for a range of services, whether it's a knee surgery or is family planning, or is behavioral health? We believe that abortion is healthcare, and just as any, uh, we support um, the coverage of any services. We also support the coverage of abortion. No, no,
1: but you, but you, I'm. Forgive me, but you keep deflecting the question. I, I'm not. I'm not asking about whether or not uh, tax dollars should be used for abortion, and I get that it's used often. For people in California who are taxpayers, my question it comes is— comes through Medicaid if, right.
0: if it's at a low-income yes, level. Yes. My,
1: my question is if a woman comes from, say, I don't know, Mississippi, because let's say Mississippi ends up banning abortion, and they take a trip and they fly in or they drive into California for the sole purpose of getting an abortion, and then once they have the abortion, they leave California and go back to Mississippi, are you saying that taxpayer dollars— People who live in California should pay for that.
8: We provide services to people who are low income that are coming from other states to pay for services. So, yes, I'm saying that if that person would have qualified for Medi-Cal, which is our Medicaid program, but for the residency requirements, we should be able to assist that person. Yes.
0: Fabiola Carrion, Director of Reproductive and Sexual Health, the National Health Law Program.
1: OK, when we come back, how to shop smart and beat inflation this holiday season. might want to get a second mortgage on your home in place to pay for this season's holiday spending. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Not only will inflation cost you a bit more for the Santa Claus's milk and cookies this holiday season, does he have milk and cookies usually? At every house, yeah, yeah, all the time. And leave some carrots for the reindeer. Oh.
0: remember the little plates by the oh, fireplace? okay, milk yeah.
1: and okay. What kind of cookies?
0: Oh, whatever you like to like chocolate chips. Chocolate I chip. always love yeah. some chocolate yeah.
1: chips. Yeah. okay, uh, good to know. You'll also be uh, reaching deeper into your pockets for Christmas decorations.
0: Yeah, the trees, the ornaments, the tinsel, the ribbon. Uh, so, how do we navigate this costly shopping experience? Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doc, he's a consultant for luxury brands and retailers of all sizes. Bob, thanks for being back here. Uh, So what's someone to do other than um, get out the card and shell out the cash, huh?
5: That's right. Shut the hell up and Merry Christmas.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Put that on a billboard somewhere. Go back to
5: last year. You you would have done anything to have holiday cheer. You got it. Now you're complaining again. It's it's
0: what we do.
1: Give give us a sense of uh, how much more expensive are we talking about and for what things?
5: Well, you know, it, it it seems to be around that 10% number for a lot of things. And there's multiple reasons for all of it. But, you know, most people have gotten, if you didn't get a raise necessarily, you still got uh, federal benefits this year. And so most people aren't going to notice it. But, you know, even in gas, you know, I think it's the average person, their gas, their, if you're a commuter, it's costing $60 more a month. Well, that might be 10 trips to a chipotle or to a starbucks so at some point it does it it does make you pause and go like wow but we haven't seen it as an effect on on consumer spending yet in fact we're hearing the consumer still hasn't put their foot down on the gas yet.
0: Yeah, so for all this. I these, think
5: it's going to be an amazing holiday.
0: For all these surveys that are out there and say people are, are spending more, is it because they have to spend more because everything's more expensive, or do they actually want to go out and spend more? Because, like you said, we didn't really get a lot of this last year. So you're going to go big this year and buy gifts for everybody.
5: Except for Mike, if I remember right. <laughs> Where's the Grinch?
0: That's <laughs> yeah.
5: Let's be honest.
0: I hand out tiny It'll bottles of like alcohol.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, like yeah. so so for, for uh, kids who might be listening to this and are maybe concerned that it's going to be too expensive for Santa to get around to their house, uh, it's not going to be that expensive. I mean, Santa's still going to be able to make the rounds, right?
5: Uh, he's going to be making bigger rounds than ever because Dad wants to be a hero this year, and there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Uh. So uh you know never fear and for everybody out there you know just remember that uh this is the time that we want to be with family and want to show that and whether it's long distance or close by uh, going whoever has the product is the one that wins this game so you're not going to see big discounts but if you see it you should buy it because quantities are limited
0: for the decorations and stuff with all of that costing more, is that just because it costs more to make it? Is it a supply chain thing, or do they just know that they have us because you're going to buy it? Uh, you're not going to not decorate your house, right?
5: Well, I think that's pretty cynical, but uh, I don't think it's that they, that. It's like, think of Christmas trees. Um, just having someone go out into the forest and cut them, it's costing more, plus the trucks to get there and the fuel. I mean, it it all adds up. But to your point, uh, you know, it is a scarcity driven uh, world out there. So if you've only got three or four of them, the difference this holiday than some others is people are discounting things. They're just making it more at full price. Right. But again, most people aren't going to notice 10% difference in, you know, it was a $6 stocking and it's now six sixty. dollars They won't notice it until you know, the bills come in January, and it
1: feels more. Well, let's just face it: we all like to complain. <laughs> there wouldn't be shows. No, I mean, everybody likes we to could complain. complain about
6: yeah.
0: something. Um, are most people doing early shopping? Like, because they are all the warnings, right? Go early, go often, and uh, don't wait till the last minute because something might not be there. So, have we seen people going early?
5: You know, I, well, yes, but, you know, I literally, I just got back from Dubai about uh, three hours ago, and the malls over there were packed with packages and shopping, and it's no different than we're seeing here in the States that people are still shopping. And, yeah, a lot of people started early, back in June, but I think there's a there's a, this perception that there's nothing out there. And when you go into most stores, though, most stores have everything. You know, they may not have that one specific color or that one thing that you might think about, but most stores are pretty well stocked and ready for holiday shopping. And remember, retail uh, is tied to four, one in four jobs in America. It is the strongest driver of economic growth. So we should want everyone to have a great holiday season, right, guys?
1: Yeah, you said you just came back from Dubai. How expensive are things there?
5: Well, it's in a whole different currency, so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I worry was, about like, it when, I you <laughs> you'll, like,
1: you'll, you'll exactly. when you get home. You'll find out when you get your credit card egg, bill. Yeah.
5: Egg, exactly. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing.
0: Are we just also more comfortable going into stores? Because last year was a huge online thing, and every year is a huge online thing because it's easy to buy stuff online. But are even, like, the smaller places doing at least a little bit better this go round? Because, hey, like, so, I can wear my mask and go in, and I'm going to be fine.
5: Yeah, well, they are, but let me make a very important distinction. We go online to buy. We go into a store to discover. You go online, you need a HP-64 cartridge. You just reorder it. You don't have to go into a Staples to get it. Uh, you know, have somebody take the little key and unlock the magic $30, you know, <laughs> uh, box. You need my ink, please. <laughs> I never yeah. quite got that. <laughs> but if I walk into Staples... The, the the stupidity is that you think that all I'm there for is that 64 cartridge and not realize I'm walking in to see what else I might like. And that is what makes brick and mortar retail still at 90, 85 to 90% of sales. And we're seeing e-com is going down. And in fact, that was a big concern for Amazon and some of the other big boys that their projections are not holding that this trend was going to keep accelerating. So, you know, I think there's great hope in brick and mortar. Obviously, I'm the retail doctor.
0: Well, it's the Target effect, right? Have you ever left a Target for under
1: $100? I don't go to Target. You have to
0: buy everything. (laughs) Thank you You very much. I don't either. That's...
1: But, you know, but, you know, I'm going to represent the pro target crowd. Uh But, you you know, you you mentioned it's funny. You mentioned something before about, you know, the the person that unlocks the product you want to buy. And I had that the other day. I went into a a pharmacy to buy uh, razors and next to the razors, which were like six bucks, was like this expensive shampoo for 25 that you could walk away with. But for the razors, yeah. they, they had to call somebody with a key Press the to come, and then they insisted on on chaperoning me to the register before I could check it out. So,
5: have you been to the post office lately to see your face? And I'm just saying, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind there. Of a couple places, so
0: you know. I'm just saying. Bob FIBS is the uh, retail doc. Bob, thanks for talking to Thank us. Thank you. He had us mixed up the Last time we talked, you were the Grinch, and I was the Happy. Christmas I'm always guy. the Grinch. Yeah. And if you like Target, tweet at me, because we're in the correct category here. All right, uh, that's In Depth for the day. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.